You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Hi there, welcome to the show. It's Tuesday, August the 24th. Bright, dry and sunny at the moment here in TW11. I'm off to Newbury for a good evening's racing for Racing TV a little later on today. And whilst we are in the throes of what is one of the most absorbing flat seasons that many of us can remember, with a whole host of top-class and potentially high-class performers waiting in the wings, thoughts do occasionally turn to the winter game. And they certainly have done today, with a little while until the next top-class racing in Ireland and Britain, with the publication from one of the top jumps trainers, Venetia Williams, of a paper entitled Some Personal Thoughts on Jump Racing in the UK in the Aftermath of the Irish Onslaught at Cheltenham in 2021. It's a, a wide-ranging piece encompassing many of the very thoughtful trainers' considerations on the sourcing of raw materials, on the handicapping system, on the differential in racing cultures between Britain and Ireland and France and on the opportunities for owners in all of those countries. I'll be hearing from Venetia very shortly but first of all Cornelius Lysert, a broadcaster and journalist, is, is with me this morning. Uh, Cornelius just give us the context uh, for Venetia's comments. Yeah 20, 23.5 wasn't it um, in the 28 race programme at the festival uh, so um, I, I'm not sure it was a massive surprise I think people had seen it coming that uh, gradually Irish contenders were getting stronger and stronger. And those days of what, 30 plus years ago, when there was the odd year, I think that was a year, wasn't there, when Ireland had no successes at all, uh, a long a long way uh, behind us. So that was the middle of March. Um, what is that, five months ago? And it was the big talking point through March, through April uh, of, uh, you know, how catastrophic was that for British racing? How could British racing uh, really try and uh, turn, turn things around? But everyone's got a view, Nick, um, you know, and um, you've probably got a view, I've probably got a view, everybody's got a view, and no, but there's been no sort of forum uh, for, for everyone to bring their review, their, their thoughts to the table. Um, but, um, and now, now we're seven months away from the next Cheltenham Festival. The core jump season starts in October. And it would be a pity if we got to that sort of stage and um, uh, and uh, sort of no one had really, really sort of um, really started talking on the whole subject publicly. And so to the piece written by Venetia Williams, and she begins by trying to understand why many of the raw materials are now in the hands of Irish trainers rather than British. And she talks extensively about the rise of the boutique sale since the crash of 2008. And I begin by asking her why she believes that is such a significant factor. Well, I think um, you only need to actually go through and analyse the success, um, successful horses at the festival, and, and half of them came from the Irish point to point. Uh, not everyone necessarily from these boutique sales, and, and by that we're, we're largely referring to Tassels Island sales that um, take place at, um, at Cheltenham Racecourse. Um, but cer certainly half of them came from the Irish point to point, which, you know, which is... A large number, um, which probably hasn't been the case in, in days gone by. Um, and, and I think 
um, you know, looking back, I mean, I think we've got to go back to um, the credit crunch of 2008-9 when a huge number of um, uh, Irish stores were let out unsold at, at, at those big sales. And, and um, you know, what could they do with them? Well, you know, most of them then fall, went into Irish point-to-points. And, um, and from that first year, which... Um, coincided with Brightwell Sales, who, who were a, a, a small local sale company to us here in Hereford. Um, and they sold, they had horse and pony sales, they had car sales, and, and they um, lighted upon an idea of having these boutique sales at Cheltenham Racecourse, which um, happened immediately after racing. Um, and, and they did such a fantastic job that um, they got an exclusive contract. Um, and from one of these initial sales, or the, the initial sale, um, there was a very good horse that, w- that was sold, Peddler's Cross, um, and he'd been led out unsold at the Derby sale, 16 grand. He'd been led out unsold at um, Doncaster Breeze Up sale for 28. Um, and he was knocked down at um, the first of these sales to Tim Leslie for 100 grand, four months and, and one point to point later. Um, and that the following season, um, he, he, won, um, he won at the Cheltenham Festival the Neptune Investment Novice Hurdle. Um, and I think that kick-started um, a great interest in, in these sales, and it's, um, it's just um, increased year on year. Um, and that's where a lot of these um, best horses are going now. And, um, you know, these point-to-point um, trainers and investors um, at the early stages now can um, buy at Tattersall's Island and, and all these other sales, but Tattersall's Island, you know, I think particularly because they are the sales company that are selling their subsequent point pointers so I'm, I'm, I'm sure um, I'm sure plenty of credit is allowed um, you know so they're now stepping up hugely on on the sort of 20 30 grand that they used to spend buying these three-year-old stores to go point to pointing you know because they've got long credit there so that they're, they're spending you know 100 grand on these stores and that in itself is very difficult for us to compete with um, so a lot of better quality horses are going to into Irish point to points um, I mean, initially back in the day, the Irish point to points were populated by by horses that couldn't be sold on on looks and pedigree alone. And occasionally, you get a very good horse would come from it, but but you know they were few and far between. But now you've got so much better horses going into these Irish point to points. Um, you know, and and you know, a horse now selling at the Irish um, at uh, Tassels Island at Cheltenham. You know, a hundred grand horse is a relatively cheap point to point when you know and they're, they're going for three, four hundred grand. Um, I think I think that's a fairly um, big part of it. So, so that is a, a big part of it in terms of sourcing the raw materials. Um, you talk about a, a whole raft of, of other issues as well. Uh, particularly the prize money um, point, which is that prize money Ireland is better. Therefore, people are attracted to race in Ireland because there is better prize money. But you've you've issued a neat counterpoint to that. Yes, um, you know, there's this this statement's been going out. You know, prize money is better in Ireland. Um, but you, you know, you've got to look at the the whole picture. Um, um, number one, there's a lot less racing in Ireland. I mean, they don't even race every day of the week. Um, and, and yes, your winner of your maiden hurdle will probably get 50% more prize money in Ireland than he will in, UK, in the UK. But, but the, the numbers of horses trying to win that race are massively um, larger than in the UK. And the horse that finishes second in that 
Maidenhead in Ireland would probably win one in England, and therefore he would get more prize money in England. Um, you know, the, these these maiden hurdles. They, you know, they even have um, they, they even have reserves on them, um, and you, you've you've got you've got a lot more races per horse in training in England than there is in Ireland. And I think um, at the very top level, the, the very big races, I think both countries can hold their own. Um, and I, but I think at, at, the, at the lower level or the medium level, you're a lot better off in, in, in the UK. And there's a much larger number of the races in Ireland that are listed or graded races compared to, to handicaps, whereas in Britain, a lot larger number of our races are, are handicaps. Um, you know, so, so you've got a better chance of winning um, a series of races, I think, in the UK um, than, than in Ireland. And, you know, you only need somebody to say to, you know, a wealthy owner, you know, prize money's better in Ireland. And um, a lot of these wealthy owners with large strings of horses, they're not going to go racing every day. You know, they're probably only going to go to the Cheltenham Festival, to Kempton, to Newbury and, and the very big places. So it doesn't actually matter to them whether their horse is trained in, in England or Ireland. Um, you know, if the case is made to them that the prize money is better in Ireland, you know, well, they'll go there. And the chances are also that um, the, the um, overheads of that um, govern training fees, you know, might just be a little bit cheaper for them in Ireland, um, underpinned largely by the lower um, costs of the property, um, the land. Um, you know, in, in England, your overheads are much, much higher and you've probably, you know, got to charge higher um, training fees. There's an there's a, an interesting discrepancy amongst sort of race fans and professionals. Um, racing fans would like to see you know, more good horses running against each other more often. However, that comes about. Racing professionals often say that there aren't enough opportunities for their you know graded novices, for example, to come through the ranks. Um, where do you stand on that in your paper? Um, well, one one thing I think I don't. I don't think you can force a horse to be better than he is by running him against different horses. Um, so, so yes, you know the, the punters um, uh, like the English horses that are a lot more exposed, and the chances are they've run, in, except for the very top horses, they probably run in more handicaps, so they're more exposed and and possibly um, uh, uh, less chance of them winning that the handicaps. Um, but but the top horses, um, you know, uh, we all know that the funding of of um, British racing and, and and Irish also, but probably um, they've got a bit of government help. But certainly certainly British racing, it all comes from um, betting turnover. Unlike every other racing country in the world, which um, largely. Um, gets their income through a, a tote system. Um, bookmakers in 1961 were legalised in the UK, um, and, and and therefore the 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 these competitive handicaps will produce um, the largest amount of um, revenue that will come back through the betting levy um, uh, in, into funding British racing and, and the prize money. Um, and uh, you know, I think one's got to acknowledge that. Um, you know, so so the the, the increase in, in prize money in, in the big handicaps and the lesser ones in, in, in Britain as opposed to Ireland, you know, does give 
um, a large amount of the racing population more more chances, I feel. And, and you feel, right, just get on and run your good horses in handicaps, a la Michael Dickinson in the old days. Just you know, stop moaning about the fact there isn't a three-runner race for you, your grade two horse to run in. Well, exactly, exactly. And, and um, you know, th- this was a lengthy conversation that I had with both Rich Ritchie and his racing manager, Joe Chambers, when we were planning what to do with Raw Pagali. You know, after he'd won his his first race, um, which was a novice, and um, I have to say, you know, that there was quite a, a surprise um, for the first time that they were actually looking at um, the British racing program with, with with a decent horse. There were there was quite a surprise as to um, how much more prize money was available to this horse in these decent handicaps relative to, um, you know, the, the, the graded races or the listed no- novices. So as a result, we, we took him to Kempton for the, for the good handicap, um, on the, um, Christmas meeting. And then we went to the Peter Marsh, um, in, in January. And, um, and we, 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 when we were fortunate enough to be successful, we, we had a little glance at, um, what the, the novices had been running for about that same time, and you know we we were we were much better off, um, you know. But as a result, therefore, the handicapper looks at what he's done on that day rather than looking at the whole um, re- uh, novice chase and and, and three mile handicap chase um, population as a whole. He only just looked at what happened on that day and and whopped him up so that. Um, you know, it's going to be very tough for a horse like him this season because he's now in the sort of one, mm. one, one, 170s when he hasn't even run against one of those novices that, you know, he could have, which would have given probably the handicap a more of an accurate handle, handle on, on ability. But there we are. Um, but, we're not complaining. <laughs> but, but broadly speaking, when you're, when you're issuing recommendations to the BHA who are about to release a paper on this, what would you say in terms of them changing the fabric, the structure of uh, of the sport well it's very easy to jump to conclusions and and i know a number of people um have said um um what they think but you know it's inevitable everybody's speaking from their own hymn sheet and and there's certain trainers you know that, that are um fortunate enough to have um a large number of quality horses you know that they obviously want to be able to um win these three and four runner um not novice novice chases or conditions races um so they'd like more of those you know there's other other trainers that that aren't so lucky to have the top horses and and you know they they have a different perspective on it so i i i do think that you know everything is cyclical and and i'm sure you know this is no different um i do think that the Cheltenham festival this year um uh i think was was a little bit of a black swan in that um you know, we all know that um, there's a number of sort of social runners at Cheltenham Festival, um, which you know English owners, you know, love having a runner there, and you know, and don't, and don't we all? But um, because Engli- English um, owners weren't able to go, I think that the um, the number of horses that ran there was um, was down a lot. Um, yes, I know that you know the handicaps um, have have a, a cut off point. Um, but I don't think that the Cheltenham Festival this year was 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 typical, um, and, I, and I think it would be a mistake for the BHA to be too drastic um, in 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 making changes. You know, because because the the pattern of British racing has evolved through hundreds of, of years. You know, of of use, 
and um, you know, just off the back of one COVID influenced Cheltenham Festival with um, a very heavy um, Cheltenham um, Irish success rate, I, I think it would be a mistake to be be too drastic and you know try and change the face of British jump racing just in one go. And I and I know you know in the, the modern day of, of social media. Um, you know, everybody can voice their opinion, um, and and there's a lot of pressure on on authorities to be seen to be taking action. Um, but I, I think I think they'd like to, I'd sooner see they had a steady hand. Okay, so if they if they don't do anything too drastic, what what then needs to be done? Are you saying the trainers need to pull their finger out and do better? Uh, are the Irish trainers not just better at getting their horses fitter and readier? Um, I, I think it would be a mistake to draw that conclusion, you know, just off the back of um, uh, one Cheltenham su- success rate. Um, I mean, I except, except it's not one Cheltenham, is it? It's, it's a pattern that's developed over over a decade, yeah. basically. Yeah, that, that that's true. That's true. Well, I, I have to say, I don't have the complete answer, but um, and I'm not sure that everybody anybody does. But I do think that one's got to look at the context of of the last 10 years i think just to sort of get a bit of a an idea on on you know how things have developed a bit but um i have to say i i don't have the complete answer for you on that question but so going back to that the context which you set out very brilliantly at the top which was why uh, the best horses were generally finding their way into a handful of yards and the growth of the boutique sale and the irish point to point system and the credit lines offered by the sales houses um with that in mind Having recognised that, what can you do to try and get in yourself and and and, uh, and and play play that play your own game? Well, um, very very deep pockets um, are required to play the same game. Trainer Venetia Williams there trying to grapple as as we all do occasionally with all sorts of interconnecting and sometimes seemingly disparate strands that have contributed to a a weaker than than acceptable performance amongst amongst British trained racehorses in the in the jump racing scene, particularly at Cheltenham this year. Now Cornelius, back in, in March, the BHA said there was not going to be a specific review into poor British performance at the Cheltenham Festival. Rather, they said that we're aware that many parts of the racing industry will be reflecting on what happened and what can be done to improve the competitiveness of racing at the top level. However, and quite rightly, this is about more than just four days in March. The health of British jump racing is always on our radar and work is well underway across several areas. The Jump Pattern Committee, for example, decided last year there were elements of the pattern and listed race program that needed looking at. And there are important pieces of work across areas such as handicapping and safety mm. welfare, all of which feed into the longer term objective of building a strong competitive jump racing industry in Britain. All, all good words, for sure. Uh, as for now, six months later, um, the BHA tell me that the handicapping team are discussing the, the subject of, of jumps ratings, but there is no announcement imminent on any, on any changes uh, on that. Normally reliable sources indicate that analysis has indicated some um, interesting thoughts about uh, UK steeplechase and, and hurdle ratings and that they have sort of crept up. Uh, with stealth over the last uh, decade or so. And the obvious knock-on effect to that is that uh, perhaps British horses have been less competitive than they might otherwise be. Uh, so, uh, and that hasn't happened on the flat in quite the same way. Now you have to decide what to do about uh, something like that. And my understanding is that 
um, the, the, the matter has been sent back to the handicapping department to, to try and sort out uh, an expression that seems to be quite often used about the British government uh, of late is that it's marking its own homework. And that strikes me as an example of uh, marking your own homework. Uh, is, are we in a situation where this is so important and the, these are such important matters and significant matters that it's all very well telling your, uh, saying to your handicapping department, you know, see what you can do to rectify this. But maybe something bigger than that, that that's my thought, maybe something bigger than that uh, is required. And I dare say that people within BHA and elsewhere will say, well, look, there's lots of hard work going on. Well, lots of hard work is going on, but we haven't heard very much about it. So it would be good to hear something about it in hopefully the not too distant future. Now, on a related theme, the Jockey Club, which owns Cheltenham Racecourse, has announced that prize money for all Jockey Club races is to return to pre-pandemic levels in Q4, the fourth quarter of 2021. Their chief executive is Nevin Truesdale, and he joins me now. Nevin, is this what you had anticipated, or has this come as a pleasant surprise to you that you've been able to do this? I think there's a degree to which, morning Nick, I think there's a degree to which we've um, probably doing this announcement probably ahead of schedule. Um, it's no secret that we've had a very difficult period um, through the pandemic, as has the whole sport, as have many other race courses, and we've had to manage our finances obviously very, very prudently through that and make some very difficult decisions. So I think if you'd asked me this sort of six months ago, would, would we get be getting our announcement or our prize money back to pre-pandemic levels this quickly? I probably would have said no. So it's it, it's really pleasing to be able to do this probably ahead of schedule. Um, and it's just tribute and testament to a lot of hard work from a lot of people sort of within the jockey club and, and beyond that we've been able to do this um, as quickly as we have. Clearly not out of the woods yet. Um, we always said with prize money that was the first thing we wanted to get back to you know, sort of normal levels. We, we've done that for a, a quarter um, coming in Q4 this year, but um, we're planning the business really quarter by quarter at the minute. Um, and we're having to take sort of decisions sort of reasonably short term, but it's it's a big difference from the start of the pandemic. We were almost planning day day by day or week by week, so it's it's definitely a, a big step forward, and it, it feels like quite a symbolic moment in many ways. Uh, do you agree that this is just the start, that we've got a long way to go before it will be considered that the UK is, uh, as a chief, or Great Britain has achieved parity with other ma- major racing nations? Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, I think all the, the reasons and the issues around that are, are well documented. I, I see this as something that we're doing specifically um, by ourselves for uh, because we can afford it and because we, we, we believe that it's the right thing to do given our mission to reinvest um, all our profits back in the sport and prize money obviously being top of that list. But I think the, your, your question talks to a, a wider issue around our international competitiveness, um, the the value that racing brings to the wider economy um, and then and the lobbying the government for things like extension of the levy to overseas racing, for example, that put us on a much more equal footing with other jurisdictions because no, there's no doubt at all that racing as a, as a significant asset to this country and a significant industry needs to punch its weight and needs to punch its weight versus those other jurisdictions. Um, so yes, I think this is, a, this, is a, this is a very positive step forward we've been able to do, but I think some of those wider issues and how we work together with government to address some of those issues are still very much on the table. And, and Gibber, we talked a lot about the funding model and the uh, balance between the correct amount of fixtures and the correct amount of prize money. Um, can you offer any uh, reassurance that you don't necessarily need a whole load more fixtures in order to, in order to make prize money more competitive? Yes, I think I 
all we can. I, mean, I think we, we, we all see there's a lot of debate going on at the minute about the, the number of fixtures and what, what that means for the racing ecosystem. It is fair to say that fewer fixtures will lead to less money going through that ecosystem, but I think equally we've got other considerations beyond financial considerations to think about when we look at the fixture list, um, and that's something we need to continue to look at, both in terms of the number of fixtures and, and the number of races. So it, it's, a, it's a balance, and for us it's about how do we find other ways of growing our business to ultimately grow the sport um, and there's different areas we're looking at around how we diversify our revenues but also how we grow um, and continue to grow our core racing product and, and that's where we need to work together both with all the race courses and also across the wider industry um, to make the sport um, you know, even more compelling so that more people want to watch it, more people want to bet on it because ultimately that's what, you, don't, you don't necessarily need more fixtures to be able to achieve that. Nevin Truesdale there, the CEO of the Jockey Club. Cornelius remains with me. And Cornelius, you have um, completed an important survey. Just tell us what it is and why you've done it. Well, this is um, part of the the Racing Welfare Board um, uh, was really um, sort of started all of this amongst its its many um, areas to, to look at as far as British racing is concerned. Uh, whip the whip is certainly uh, one of them and uh, there is a survey available i had to do a bit of googling to find it actually because a friend of mine said to me you must do this because and and i think uh, he was right you know it's really important that uh, views are put forward so i did end up googling bha whip survey and uh, it came up pretty pretty quickly then and it does take a quarter of an hour or so uh, to to offer views on uh, the the, uh, the the regulations as they stand, penalties as they stand. One of the questions actually is about the name. Should we try and change the name of the whip? Uh, uh, I actually answered, I think that particular ship has sailed. Uh, maybe the whip isn't an ideal world, but a uh, word. But if we tried to change it, most people would still call it the whip and uh, opponents of racing would probably say it was just something to try uh, and appease them. But um, I, I think it's it's well worth doing. It's been going this survey since the 1st of July. It continues until the 6th of September. Uh, and um, it's not only is it worth doing, but it, it's also interesting. And uh, uh, yeah, I can give it a five star recommendation in terms of if you're if you're if you take racing seriously and we know that the whip is a really important part of the future uh, and its use is a really important part of the future then it's a survey well worth taking part in if you can but have you been struck by one thing over the last few days um is it is it right did i read somewhere there were no suspensions for the whip or or anything at york last week correct not a, not a whip yeah. suspension at york and it just strikes me there are you know there, there there were a couple of whip suspensions i noticed yesterday and and uh, a couple at the weekend but there, there do seem to be less suspensions. I don't want to tempt Providence here. Less suspensions going around. And I was just thinking about why. And I wonder whether um, this ongoing one meeting rule, so people aren't, jockeys aren't charging around the country, starting at sort of crack of dawn and not getting home till after midnight, having been to two or even three fixtures, means everyone's just, just in a better frame of mind. And one of the byproducts of that is right, uh, jockeys are, are riding better. I, I'm not offering that as a, I, I, well, I'm offering that as a, a, po- a positive. And I do think that, um, you know, when, when considering the whip and all aspects of regulation in racing, we do have to look at the positive side of things as well. And if suddenly this, this one meeting rule is, is having a good positive effect, that's, that's really strong. 
Well, it's Tuesday morning, so today is the day we go around the bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherby's, their global stallion app and the excellent stallion book. And today we take you to Kenya, where I'm delighted to say I can welcome in Mary Binks, who has been an integral part of horse racing in Kenya for, for many years. Mary was the chair of the Kenya stud book from 1988 to 2012. She's an owner, a breeder and a member of the Jockey Club uh, of Kenya. And this year, Mary's homebred Kenya Derby winner, General Lee, fulfilled what I can probably describe as at least half a lifetime, if not a whole lifetime's ambition. Mary, thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, and it is great to welcome Kenyan Bloodstock to this to this show. Thank you very much indeed for inviting Kenya to be part of your exciting program. And I'm delighted to be here with you this morning. So tell me first of all, Mary, about your own journey to, to Kenya and, and your own journey in, in thoroughbred racing. Well, I've always been involved in horses. My maternal side of my family was very involved in horses, not particularly racing, but I always wanted to be a jockey. My grandmother forbid it. Um, I came here in 1971 and... Um, the short version is I came in and then I married the safari guide um, and have stayed ever since. And I got involved with uh, racing here in 1981. So um, that was my first derby runner and I've been waiting until 2021 to win it, which is patient. Um, but uh, I've been involved in many facets of the jockey club and in fact was the first woman member of the jockey club from there establishment in 1904 until I became a member in 78 um, and then I was the first woman steward and so I've, I've had a little I've ridden as an amateur I've had a little bit to do with almost everything so so you were a, a bit of a pioneer in, in many respects just just to pick up on that what sort of culture was it in in Kenyan racing when when you arrived? Just give me a flavour of of what the sport was like, whether it was just surviving or whether it was thriving. What was it like when you first got there? In the uh, early eighties, it was pretty much thriving. Um, we had almost twice as many uh, meetings as we have now, um, but it was very British based. There were few local um kenyan owners and zero breeders um since then i mean in those days it was sir charles markham at the helm and beryl markham was still training but uh since then it's evolved a lot the country has evolved when i came in 72 there were 11 million people here and now there's 66 million people in Kenya so the face of the country has changed and the amount of farms and available places to race and to breed horses has reduced significantly and what about the the popularity of the sport yeah how close to the so, so the cultural center is horse racing in Kenya uh it's sort of the same in in the early 80s there was nothing to do on Sundays except go racing but now there's a lot of other things on offers from malls and movie theaters to go-kart racing and swimming places and so there's more for people to do and I will say that this last year COVID has hit us very very badly we've had to shut down racing twice and 
um, even now we're still racing behind closed doors, essentially. And so, how confident are you that you can you can return to to something like normality in the fullness of time? Uh, the best I can say is fairly. There's a lot of change in the demographics of who's owning racehorses and who's keen and while we were behind closed doors yesterday i have to say the balance of different cultures was much more realistic we have a quite a few uh kenyan trainers now um and uh almost all our jockeys are indigenous kenyans um there's a lot more uh, African ownership, Asian ownership. So I think, and I was interested yesterday, there were a lot of young people there, and that filled me with quite a bit of enthusiasm. So you've really been a, been a big part of a, a whole transition in, in Kenyan racing to, to try and uh, bring the sport up to date. And we talk about that in, in the UK and the US, but when you're trying to do that in a, in a sort of post-colonial context, it presents all sorts of, of challenges that, that perhaps we're not really appreciating in other parts of the world. I think that's absolutely the case, Nick, but I think it's interesting also because we are virtually an island. There are only the four African nations who are uh, members of the International Horse Racing um, Association. But we're way up north, far away, and we're very constrained by veterinary uh, issues of African horse sickness. So for us, if we have an outstanding horse here in the old days, we could take it down to South Africa and race it. And now South Africa will not accept our horses without well more than 60 days in quarantine. And um, bringing horses from overseas, we bring a lot of horses from South Africa now, and they have they come in with no problem. But once they're in, they can't go out again. Um, they've had a stranglehold on the classics practically for the last 10 years so i was pretty delighted when <laughs> we did well with our little horse um but uh, so it is difficult i mean it's exciting we have two new stallions that came up here to race both of which were outstanding racehorses uh one has just uh been at stud for a couple years and not had so many mares because he's where they keep him is far away but we have one going this week up to Bruce Nightingale's farm, Kanana, which is the main breeding station now. Uh, a very good horse, won uh, 12 out of 13 races by Master of Fate from South Africa. Um, so I, and as very, very keen uh, ex-Kenya Airlines pilot who owns him. And so the, the, it's changing and I'm hopeful um, that uh, we can turn it around a little bit. We'll never go back to the way we were, but if we can keep going, one of the most important things to me is the actual land that the Jockey Club is on. It's very close to the main central business district, but it's in uh, the edge of a rest uh, restricted national forest that's protected. And I always think of Ngong Race Course, which is very beautiful as... Um, what can I say? It's the lung of Nairobi, uh, the green lung of Nairobi. And uh, we're branching out in other um, areas to help us, which is we now have a, a golf course in the middle of the race course. We have a rugby pitch in the middle of the race course. We have a big venue, 
for weddings and concerts, etc., with a dam, and we've just now got a, um, a target shooting range, a licensed target shooting range, which is quite unusual in Kenya. There also, so we're trying to put more more arrows in our quiver. Well, a very important arrow in your own quiver, as, as you've mentioned, is General Lee, who who won the Kenyan Derby for you this year. Uh, was I right in describing this as a as a as a labour of love or a lifetime's work? Um, pretty much. Uh, my first Derby winner at runner was third, and that really gave me a lot of oh, I can do this. But um, I've been placed lots of times and won the other classics, but I never won the Derby, so I I wept. Not too much, but wept for joy. Um, and I'm particularly proud because the stallion that I share with Mr. Nightingale, Secret War, who's a Rambo dancer um, from South Africa, raced up here extremely successfully. Everybody laughed at us when we took him because he was so small. But um, this year, he, with very few runners, he won the Guineas and the Derby, second in the Guineas and second in the ledger so for a horse with uh very few opportunities he's produced 82 percent winners and 21 percent stake winners so i'm proud of him as well and is it right that that he could have taken a, a completely different route and i mean completely different route well it was funny because both general lee and laura lee parents were um offered to me to, to jump or take eventing and generally had a big sorry his dad secret war had a big fetlock and the mare was older and hadn't been ridden in a long time and also she was very difficult ride um so i said well i'll take them but i'm going to send them to stud um so that's how it happened and then Laura Lee herself was a very difficult mare to breed from. She always produced things late. In fact, Bruce Nightingale called me in January and said, she's not in full again. Do we want to have one more go? And I said, okay, one more go. So General Lee himself was born just before Christmas. And on a 1st of August aging, that wasn't ideal. Uh, but the 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 end was a, a wonderful one, and uh, as you say, the small stallion maybe in, wasn't intended for the job has produced the the result you always wanted. Mary, thanks so much for for talking to me. It's been uh, enlightening, and, and I'm so pleased that we've been able to to feature Kenyan racing on the show. Well, you're most kind, and I encourage anybody that comes to Kenya on safari to see all the big game pops into Ngong Racecourse. It's very beautiful. Um, we're on summer break so to speak now till the beginning of october but then anybody could get in touch with us and we'd be more than happy to welcome them here well thanks to all my guests today um thank you to mary that was absolutely fascinating uh, i knew very little if anything about racing in Ke in kenya before but I, I feel very well informed now cornelius lysett is is still with me and has a tip to send us home well the pressure's on jane gave flying scotsman squeaked home as the uh, Odds of three to one yesterday at Ballin Robe. Um, I was going to go to Bangor for no comment in the uh, 310 race because Tom O'Brien, a really good national hunt jockey, uh, reached a, a thousand winners at the weekend. I was at Worcester on Sunday when he did it and we didn't celebrate it because we hadn't taken into account his one winner in Ireland. So we thought he was still, as indeed did he, thought he was still on 999. 
so he, he remains in Britain on 999. No comment runs in the 310 at Bangor, but it looks quite a competitive race. So I'm going to go 425 Musselburgh. Number five, Arch Moon had a breathing operation. Uh, rating seems very realistic uh, and the extra distance should suit. 425 Musselburgh, number five, Arch Moon, but good luck to Tom O'Brien at Bangor. Cornelius, thanks very much. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.